The Mystery File Collective is intended for mature audiences. The following content may contain material that some people find triggering. If you feel disturbed by tales of murder, mystery, or myth, if you believe that they could traumatize you, we implore you to use your discretion before listening. We are about to share with you the grisly details of an ongoing police investigation which documents the murderous trail of one of Scotland's most notorious serial killers known as the Butcher of St. Manans. The killer of which has never been caught and may very well still be out there haunting the southern shores of Scotland to this very day. Out of respect for the deceased and the victims who have survived, some minor details and names have either been changed or altered to protect their identities. We warn you that the following may disturb those who are easily upset by sexual themes torture, exploitation, and cruelty towards other humans. None of these events that we are about to discuss should be heard by those under the age of 18. The investigation began in 1999, 31st of October, Halloween night. A woman's scream awoke everyone within the tiny village of St. Manans. When onlookers peered out of their windows, they could see a distressed woman sprinting through the village, crying and calling for help. She wore a kinky maid's outfit for Halloween, and the costume had been ripped open by the breast area, exposing her bra. Her makeup was a hideous mess of black tears, which rolled down her horrified face. It appeared as though somebody was trying to attack or assault this beautiful young woman. However, her pursuer was nowhere in sight. Eyewitnesses who saw the young woman running in terror could not tell you what she was running away from. This woman in question was named Stephanie Wright, and she didn't reach out to the police until the following morning. It was the 1st of November, 1999, at 10.42am, when she finally reached the police station and shared with them her story. However, police were rather skeptical about her tale as there were some events which seemed far too bizarre to be true. She had claimed her assaulter's name was Marilyn Bateman, who was apparently a huge seven foot tall man. 
police immediately doubted the man's name to be correct, for she was surely very intoxicated and had no clear story to tell. Her encounter was a blurry mess of drunken fear. Officers dismissed her story due to a lack of evidence or any credible detail. She could not even tell them the direction of Marilyn's flat or possible house, never mind his address. It wasn't until the 2nd of November 1999 when the local police station received a call at 3.21pm that the woman's story was given credibility. It was the landlord who owned Sandbrook Flats. He told police that a tenant named Marilyn Bateman hadn't got out of his room, which was beginning to smell like death and rot. The landlord proclaimed that Marilyn actually made him feel very uneasy, for he was an often aggressive, depressed, and very emotional tenant. The landlord feared that he may have ended his own life. Police understood the caller's concern and immediately sent a police car out to investigate. Two police officers arrived at the Sandbrook Flats at 3.30pm and immediately met the landlord within the lobby. They asked him a few questions first and confirmed that this was the very same building where Stephanie Wright had been taken to and escaped. The landlord told them how strange Marilyn would often act. He kept himself to himself and would sometimes shout or snarl at literally anyone who tried to be friendly or talk to him. He was fine as long as nobody bothered him, and despite his weirdness, the seven-foot-tall bodybuilder always paid his rent on time. Another interesting detail about the tenant was that he wrote murder novels. He self-published, Originally, horror stories that the landlord didn't believe were any good, although his later work had seen a vast improvement. Being more crime-focused, with a detailed eye on the intricate and often sickening act of murder. Officers thanked the landlord for his time before retrieving the tenant's room key the landlord confessing that he did not dare go in himself. The police entered Marilyn's residence at 3.38pm. It was not immediately evident that this was the room of a serial killer. Although the smell was strong from the kitchen, the living room itself was left completely derelict and empty. Although Marilyn did leave a bit of a mess behind, suggesting that he had left the flat in a hurry. His bedroom was devoid of clothes and personal belongings, but it was the kitchen itself where the horrifying discovery of two unfortunate murder victims were found. The police who discovered the bodies were beyond traumatized by what they'd witnessed, for crime in a small peaceful village like St. Manan's was typically quite mundane. Missing people, 
occasional assaults or thefts. Nothing like this. Never in a million years would anyone suspect a murder to take place in St. Manan's. Never mind two. The horror of the crime scene all the more sickening as these bodies were grotesquely chopped and skinned. They were so horrifically decomposed that their tissue appeared like glue, revealing waxy bones beneath. It was impossible to tell the difference between the two victims, 29-year-old Jason Smith and 17-year-old Catherine Carter. The only evidence forensics had to go on was the fact that Marilyn had left several notes around the kitchen, all of which were penciled in a brown, reddish substance, which was later tested to be the blood of both Jason and Catherine, meaning these disturbing notes were both written in blood. And seven of these blood-written notes were found. Four of them told how Marilyn was able to dispose of the bodies, why he chopped them up, and the fact that he was doing this for writing inspiration, for he was a struggling writer who self-published books and other stories that nobody was reading. And the small audience that did read his work would often heavily criticize the stories for their poor writing. So detectives came to the conclusion that there had been a serial killer at large in St. Menand's. The prime suspect was a seven foot tall male named Marilyn Bateman. And the reason Marilyn committed these murders was to help him towards writing truly horrific depictions of murder and death for his now notorious series of murder mystery novels which were evidently based on hauntingly true events which he had committed himself. Since discovering Marilyn's secrets, the books were quickly removed from online retailers However, rare copies still circulate the internet, fetching for up to thousands of British pounds, as disturbed serial killer fanatics seem to adore his despicable works. Two of the bloodied notes, however, tell us how both Jason and Catherine were murdered. We are about to share their final moments with you. Unfortunately, a lot of what was written in these notes is unintelligible. So we have tried our best to decipher what really happened. The murder of Jason Smith, dated the 11th of April, 1999. This note tells us how Jason Smith was an arrogant co-worker of Marilyn's at the warehouse he worked at. Jason was a loudmouth, a bully. It describes how much hatred the killer felt for his victim. And it describes how he sucked up to his enemy 
pretending to be his friend, until Jason finally respected Marilyn and gave him a break. However, Marilyn was not so forgiving. He planned to win Jason over to the point where they would hang out outside of work, drinking together in pubs and nightclubs. One night he said Jason could stay over at his house. He had been pretending to be drinking heavily the night of the murder, allowing Jason to become a bumbling idiot. While Marilyn had the upper hand, the killer reveals in his note that he had always wanted to murder somebody since his stories began to get heavily criticized for inaccuracies. Marilyn knew if he could feel, see, and successfully end a person's life, only then could he truly depict a horrifying killing within his writing. Jason Smith was the perfect victim in his twisted opinion, for he wished to write a story of vengeance and desired to understand the satisfaction of finally overpowering your nemesis. It really is quite sickening how Marilyn describes his first victim almost like Jason Smith is no man at all, rather like some irritating fly that must be dealt with. He wrote how glorious it felt to see the life drain from his eyes, to hear his screams and cries for mercy. Marilyn loved how weak and pathetic he made Jason feel before finally ending his pitiful life. The murder of Catherine Carter, dated the 29th of July, 1999. Marilyn describes how frustrated he was trying to write about fear in his novels. He explains that his story had received a lot more attention for his true-to-life depictions of murder, but some critics felt his work was too sadistic and not scary. Marilyn was furious about all the haters who said his books seemed to glamorize death and celebrate murder, how his story seemed to glorify the killers and demonize his victims. Some dared to say that Marilyn had a perverse gore fetish and was described by some to be a mentally ill psychopath whose books should have been banned for glorifying serial killers. So Marilyn took it upon himself to turn the tides and show the world how great a horror writer he could really be by going so far as to murder another person again. This time it was a woman, and his plan was to abduct her, seemingly out of the blue, on a cold, dark night. Marilyn did just that. He spotted Catherine Carter walking around the village's countryside at around 9.50 p.m., Nobody was around for miles, and in a remote place outside of St. Manans, 
Marilyn knew that no cameras would spot him take her away. He describes how he began chasing the young woman down a deserted road, beeping his car at her first, before rolling down his window, screaming at her that he was going to kill her, put his hands all over her, strip her naked, and cut her beautiful face and body apart, then show her a mirror. After all this, he ran her over at a low speed, just enough to cripple, but not kill her. Catherine kicked and screamed for help, painfully fighting to get away, but she was unable because of her injuries. Marilyn writes about how hysterical Catherine was screaming so loudly and relentlessly, her words becoming a jumbled mess of unintelligible cries and wails of pain and mercy. He writes about her begging for death as he pulled her out of his car and began slicing away at the webbing between her fingers. He wrote about how freezing cold her skin was when he stripped her naked and pushed and pulled her around in the cold, wet mud. Catherine stuttered involuntarily from the coldness, her skin turning blue and pale. He wrote down every single reaction to her slow and painful death, and he seemed amused by the terrified expression which still lingered on her face long after her agonizing death. Again, Marilyn was left feeling deeply unfulfilled by this second murder, and when he finished writing this note with Catherine's blood, his continuing stories received more love and admiration from a now growing small circle of fans that had begun to win over critics. The last note we will share with you, written in what police believe to be his own blood, it does not depict a murder. However, it does reveal the plan he had for Stephanie Wright. Marilyn writes about how some of his most loyal fans began to notice how sexual his depictions of murder could be. Although this was unintentional by the author, he was extremely thrilled to learn that people were finding his writing erotic. He admits in this note that the empowerment he felt over defeating both Catherine and Jason was truly enticing to the point where he found remembering their deaths far more arousing than that of traditional sex. So for his sick, twisted fans, and for his own personal perverse fantasies, he had bought several sex toys and BDSM products, including handcuffs, ball gags, a medieval-looking sickle, and a red gimp suit 
which he very much intended on using. Thankfully, the note ends there, and Stephanie was very fortunate to escape with her life. However, upon hearing this truth, she has been left truly shaken and deeply traumatized by her encounter with Marilyn Bateman. Upon discovering these truly disturbing notes, an investigation began on the 4th of November 1999. They watched local CCTV footage of Marilyn's escape the night of Stephanie's close encounter with death. It was seven minutes past midnight on the 1st of November when Marilyn ran out of his room with a small suitcase that dropped clothes. He began running back and picking them up in a panic. The killer owned a white Ford Capri car which had a sports fin added, making it look very distinct. He scrambled into his car and he drove off at a frantic pace. However, police were able to follow his car through an interconnected series of security cameras which spotted around the small village. Two officers were thrilled to track down the car, thinking that they would soon catch this horrible excuse for a man. Only the lead led them towards an old garage further north of Scotland. The mechanics here said that they had bought Marilyn's car at a ridiculously cheap price. The man practically gave the car away for less than 100 Scottish sterlings. The reason now made perfect sense. The garage owner did not question it, for the business who bought the car was struggling to keep afloat. Marilyn's car could prove vital to saving profits. The white Ford was now considered evidence, so police impounded the car to a nearby station where the vehicle would be dusted for fingerprints or any signs which may point towards the direction that Marilyn was heading. Unfortunately, this is where the trail ran cold, for there was very little CCTV footage to track down Marilyn's whereabouts, as the area of Scotland he was last seen is heavily forested and isolated from society, meaning Marilyn simply vanished as if walking into a deep dark wood and was never seen again. With this lead coming to an unfortunate end, detectives were drafted from Dundee to his home village of St. Manans to ask the locals about this mysterious suspect killer, in the vain hope that they could shed some light into Marilyn's mindset. When detectives asked his old co-workers in the warehouse where he worked, far outside of the village, they claimed that Marilyn was a very strange and quiet man. Many believed him to be a simpleton, yet after Jason went missing, he suddenly became quite volatile, somehow emboldened. Nobody messed or picked on him because of his size. The man was a giant, standing seven feet tall. But also, 
His demeanor had changed. He was suddenly the type that couldn't stand being talked down to or shouted at for even a second. He would always bite back, yelling at his managers no matter how high up they were, with a mean glare in his eyes. He never lost his job, however, as the man reportedly worked hard and was never late. Yet nobody related this character change to the disappearance of Jason Smith. Nobody suspected Jason's disappearance was the result of foul play, as Jason's lifestyle was known to be chaotic. Nobody liked him anyway. Everyone considered him a bully. And when he disappeared, they just thought he up and left. Another chaotic life choice. Beyond this information, unfortunately, it seemed as though many simply didn't know Marilyn Bateman too well. Not enough to shed any light or offer new information on this foul-mannered killer. So the police turned to his family. Detectives discovered that his father, Stephen Bateman, was a local butcher in the village of St. Manans. He would often give his son spare pocket money for helping him out with the small business, gutting fish, skinning hares, and chopping up the dead corpses of sheep or pigs for display. He taught his son well, showing him love and patience. Stephen would have told us how much Marilyn loved working with him, it is believed that Marilyn's love for butchery at such an early age was what inspired him to continue these practices on human beings. Unfortunately, by the time this investigation had begun, Stephen Bateman had already been dead for over 15 years. He died in 1985 when Marilyn was just a boy. It was discovered that Marilyn lived with his father until he was just 12 years of age, before having to move in with his mentally unstable mother, Annie Bateman, who had been in and out of asylums and hospitals throughout her life. However, health professionals believed that she had been capable of looking after herself since 1982, and saw no harm in leaving Marilyn with her in the year 1984. With this newfound information, detectives reached out to Annie Bateman on the 17th of November 1999 at 13.45pm. To their surprise, it was discovered that Annie owned a luxurious mansion in the remote countryside of southern Scotland. Lovely and peaceful though this place may have seemed, detectives were soon to discover that this isolation would prove far too damaging for Marilyn's mental health and social development, for Annie kept her son locked up inside this glorious place, which to a young 12-year-old Marilyn felt far closer to that of a cold and lonesome prison than a glamorous home that many would kill for. A 
Upon meeting Annie Bateman, she sat in a wheelchair and at first seemed very distant with the detectives, snarling at them without saying much at all. Rather how Marilyn himself had been described by others. The two detectives felt that their conversation with Annie was going nowhere until Annie suddenly told them that she always wanted a daughter instead of a boy. Upon asking if this was the reason that her son was named Marilyn instead of a more traditional boyish name, Annie nodded, confirming their suspicions. And then suddenly, Annie Bateman was full of life. She told them how she hated her own son for simply being a member of the fouler sex, as she put it. She complained about men and their piggish behavior, even insulting the two detectives who were both male. Yet they ignored her remarks, for they felt that she was about to share with them some vital evidence that would later prove to be very important to this ongoing case. Annie rolled over to an old photo album that was gathering dust in the corner of the dining room. She struggled to pick up the book, but insulted the detectives when they tried to help her. They held their tongues and remained patient with her. She opened the photo album upon the table and began to smile and chuckle at some of the old photographs of Marilyn who had long blonde curly hair. To the detective's surprise, the boy was wearing pretty pin-up dresses of blue, pink, red, yellow and white. The boy had a look of defeat, of sorrow and a fear within all of these photographs. However, his face was full of makeup, so hideous, he almost looked like a clown. The detectives could not see how distressed Marilyn looked, despite all the forced, unnaturally wide smiles that he painfully pulled while posing for these photographs. Annie was in tears by this point, proclaiming how beautiful her little girl Marilyn looked, just like the famous glamour model and Hollywood movie star that came before her. Annie told the detectives how much better Marilyn was this way, never getting dirty or bloody by being a butcher or playing football in the mud with all those dim-witted boys. She smiled proudly, telling them how she taught her daughter manners and elegance. Sometimes, she joked, she would chase Marilyn's friends away with an old single-shot rifle that she owned for hunting, oftentimes chasing away the poor boys who came to visit Marilyn, even going so far as to shoot at them and call them disgusting names. And while Marilyn would cry and scream from his bedroom, begging his mother not to hurt them too, 
his cries fell on deaf ears. Madeline was to be a girl and not a boy. It was at this point that Annie told detectives how when Marilyn grew up, he became a perverted, disgusting teenager. He would begin to fight back and beg Annie to let him wear normal boy clothes and to go to school like the other kids or to walk around town freely. She told us that Marilyn began to get physically aggressive trying to escape his bedroom which he kept locked after 8pm. One day he got really furious with her, screaming that he didn't want to be a little girl. He wanted to be a man who could meet a lovely woman and marry and have his own family. By this point Annie was shouting in a raving fit of disgust and hatred. She told detectives how she began using a large kitchen knife to cut small slices into his upper back whenever the rowdy teenager misbehaved and whenever he brought up the mention of sex or was caught touching himself as she put it, the kitchen knife would come out again. Only this time she would throw the foul-mannered boy over her lap, threatening to castrate him right there and then pulling his dress over his head, stroking the blade against his manhood. Annie at this point became quite distressed, hysterical, inconsolable. And the detectives ended the interview, apologizing for bringing up old, forgotten memories. Despite the fact that they believed that she was just as monstrous as he was, before leaving, Annie told them how disgusted she was upon discovering that her son was a suspected serial killer. However, they noted that she was not devastated like most mothers would be. Annie simply snarled and said how typical it was for any man to commit such atrocities. Both detectives left her mansion without saying another word. They had gathered all the information they needed and knew it was best to leave the pitiful woman behind. None of them brought this up with each other, but they strongly suspected that perhaps a man, maybe even several, had treated her like an animal many, many years ago when she was but a young girl herself. They had a hunch it was Marilyn's father who may have been the original psychopath of this family. But alas, he was long dead and that piece of history shall remain forever a mystery. Perhaps it was Stephen Bateman who had originally saved Marilyn from her life of humiliation and cruelty. Yet many locals complained that even his father could be very foul-mouthed and ill-tempered himself. So perhaps Marilyn was a lost cause either way. For many years, it unfortunately felt like this disturbing case had ran cold. Nobody had ever seen or heard of Marilyn Bateman since 1999 within the Scottish village of St. Menans. However, 
in the year 2001, on the 29th of December at 9.52 a.m., Annie's carer was horrified to encounter her dead corpse, which had a look of pure terror and hatred upon her old crooked face, which was still a mess of red flesh wounds and scars, still leaking gore and blood. Annie had been stripped naked of her clothes. Both of her breasts had been stabbed repeatedly, leaving bloodied strips of skin and flesh upon the bedsheets between her legs, as if symbolizing a period. The murder weapon was an old, rusty kitchen knife that police believed to be the exact same one that was used upon her own son as a threat of castration. When police collected the murder weapon, they were both disturbed yet unsurprised to discover Marilyn Bateman's fingerprints all over it. Police tried desperately to recover the mansion's CCTV footage of the night of Annie's murder. But unfortunately, it seemed as though the killer had already beaten them to the punch by removing the tapes within the mansion's security office. Somehow avoiding the lousy night guards, who clearly did a poor job of looking after the Bateman residence. It appeared as though Marilyn was playing tricks with the detectives, however, for he was smart enough to sneak into his old home, undetected, and escape without alerting the guards or being caught on tape. Yet he conveniently forgot to clean up the fingerprints he left behind, all over the place. It was obvious to everyone that he wanted them to know he had returned yet was still smart enough to cover his tracks. For a further five years, nobody had heard of the butcher of St. Menans. It was only in 2006, the 13th of August, when one of the old detectives who worked on the original 1999 case stumbled upon a murder mystery book whilst on his travels through England. He was immediately frightened by the author's name. Martin Bates. The name sounded eerily similar to that of Marilyn Bateman, almost as if this was a sly nod to those who knew of these foul murders. Upon reading the title of the book, his blood soon ran cold, for it read, The Mysterious Death of Anita Carmen with a black-and-white photograph of the now-derelict Bateman's mansion, which was left to ruin after the death of Marilyn's mother, Annie. When the detective saw the synopsis, he almost had a heart attack. The following read, Discover the dark truth behind the Carmen family. A mother who wishes she had a daughter instead of a son. A father who taught his son to hunt. And a mysterious little girl, who many believe to be a ghost. This family has a lot of enemies within the nearby Scottish village of St. Menans. When the mother of this family, Anita Carmen, is mysteriously murdered by an unknown assassin, mansion staff soon discover the body and a horrific 
murder investigation begins. The detective paced himself before frantically searching through the pages, looking desperately for Marilyn's photograph. But the author had not left a photograph of himself within this book, so he ran to the shop's counter and asked the shop manager where he had gotten this book from, or if he knew Martin Bates personally. The manager said he simply stocked popular self-published novels in this independent bookshop, for they were far easier and cheaper to purchase in bulk than traditionally published works. He had no idea who Martin Bates was personally, and had only ever met the delivery man who came by to drop off reading material for the shop. The detective explained that he believed Martin Bates was actually the infamous suspected serial killer, Marilyn Bateman, and he needed the book to confirm his suspicions. He did not wish to purchase it, however, for he knew the royalties would return to the killer himself. However, the manager only scoffed at his story and refused to give him the book for free, so the detective swallowed his pride and bought the book regardless. Everything that was depicted within this story was an exact retelling of what really happened, down to the reveal that it was the victim's real son, the boy that had been brought up as a girl, that had returned as the killer and that he would kill her out of revenge for forcing him to behave and dress like a woman as a child. Upon researching this book, there were thousands of reviews, all proclaiming how amazing this story was, how everyone who had read the book was rooting for the killer to murder his own mother after she stripped bits of flesh from his back with an old kitchen knife and for threatening to castrate him with the very same blade. It made the detective sick. Madeline was promoting himself as a hero to millions of people, all under the disguise of a pen name, which was a blatant variant of his original name. Yet nobody had connected these dots until the detective discovered this book. Although the book was famous, Nobody had ever seen Martin's face, or even knew where he lived, only that he was Scottish, or possibly from the north of England. When police began investigating this author, they were able to track down the location of the cardholder, which connected to the bank account where all the royalties were being paid out to. It was revealed that Martin had been living within the northern city of York, living inside an old Victorian house with five stories and a massive garden. Local police came by Martin's house on the 20th of August 2006 at 14.52 p.m. They could not prove that this man was in fact Marilyn Bateman. However, his photograph did resemble him greatly, although his nose appeared more thin and chiseled while his lips were very much puffier than Marilyn suggested. 
He had minor plastic surgery to change his facial appearance, as well as changing his hair color from a natural blonde to a jet black. He had ditched his old glasses and now wore contact lenses. However, police were still given enough reason to investigate the residence. Upon looking at the old house, it appeared as though nobody was inside. The place seemed empty and abandoned, and the police could not break in without a warrant, so they had no choice but to leave. On the 27th of August 2006, Martin's books were mysteriously removed from all online bookstores, which was met with millions of angry fans, all trying to reach out to their favourite author by email or phone call but his social media pages and websites had vanished too. It was like his whole online persona was suddenly wiped away from the internet. And just like before, Martin's printed books would soon become extremely rare, gaining value. Police were finally given a warrant to enter Martin's house on the 29th of August 2006. Unfortunately, they were far too late. It appeared as though Martin had escaped yet again, and before detectives could catch on to this, the man had once more simply disappeared like a ghost, and has never been seen since. Detectives have tried to search for Marilyn, even reading through thousands of modern-day murder mystery books in a vain attempt to catch him out again. Unfortunately, Marilyn, or... Martin's stories have become so popular that many have copied his writing style and graphic depictions of murder to the exact detail. Many even try to copy the author's name. We've encountered authors calling themselves Marty Bastille, Merlin Batter and so forth. As of 2022, it seems almost impossible to catch Marilyn Bateman, for he has clearly proven himself to be a criminal mastermind. You may have even read one of his books without realizing it. He could very well be your favorite author. <laughs>